Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So we're going to be picking up our discussion from last week, and we're going to talk a little more about renunciation and about the role that sexuality and sensuality and uh, the desire for sensory gratification, what roles do these things have in our spiritual life? So we started our discussion with renunciation two weeks back, and then we proceeded to talk about brahmacharya, the vows of continence. And then we talked to today, hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about this and explore how different systems of yoga approach this um, situation, the situation that we're in. And we're going to explore what the difference between sensuality and sexuality is, and if there is a way for us to reconcile the world and spirit. So we'll move past Patanjali's uh, dualism for a little bit, and we'll make a slight venture into Tantra, a beautiful artistic and philosophical movement from 10th century India and see if there are any practices there that can be helpful to us. Primarily, I want to extend last week's discussion today by giving you a few tools that you can immediately put into practice um, coming from different traditions in order to maybe achieve some of the ideals we talked about last week. Okay, with that being said, let's do our few disclaimers. The first is that um, it is only true insofar as it is true for you. Meaning everything that I say must check out in your own experience of life. If it doesn't, if something I'm saying doesn't quite resonate or make immediate sense, I invite you to unmute um, at any time or drop a thing in the chat and I'd be very happy to debate you on any point. That's the first disclaimer. The second one is that nothing that I will present today is original or comes from me at all. Everything that, ha- that I will say has been said perhaps much more articulately and eloquently by masters that have come before. And so if you'd like a citation, if you'd like to do some further reading, please also ask me at the end of the class um, about anything that I said, and I'll cite a source for you. The next thing to mention is that this discussion is about spiritual philosophies. Naturally, we'll be talking about some very subtle topics And we're more interested in the subtle aspect of these topics than their outward manifestations. So there's a big difference between exoteric religion, the kind of social convention of religion that often is used as a political manipulation tool or as at best a survival mechanism, you know. And exoteric religion is very showy. It's, It's about being seen at church and it's about doing certain things that can be verified publicly. And so given that a lot of these exoteric religious efforts are political in nature, they do try to distinguish themselves from other power centers. So an exoteric religion is very interested in uh, demarcating itself or making itself special and different and unique. Um, And so it likes to claim truth exclusively. Now, 
That being said, we're not interested in that. We're interested in the esoteric dimensions of religion, which is the philosophical inquiry of what it takes to live a meaningful life or what is beauty, what is truth. And as we go on this philosophical adventure, we start to realize that all religions are just sets of symbols, each explaining in a different way, some core principle, some core set of beliefs. So naturally we'll be very syncretic in our approach, but I also want to say here that if there is a particular tradition that you um, are predisposed to, I'd be very happy to speak to you in terms of that tradition. So if I mention something like a yogic concept or a tantric concept, and you want to find its equivalent in any other mystical school in the world, well, the main ones, I don't have much experience with Rastafari, but we can talk some Ethiopian Christian mysticism. Please ask me, and then we can have a discussion on those terms. Yeah, Baha'i. <laughs> I can talk Zoroaster, but Baha'i a little bit difficult there. Okay, so definitely um, feel free to stop me and ask for equivalent ideas in different traditions. With that being said, I want to point out, the first thing I want to point out today is that all spiritual traditions in the world, and we mentioned this last week, but all spiritual traditions in the world um, have a few sets of practices in common. And one of those practices is turning away from the world. And now I'm not going to get into any Plato or Sankhya because we already did that two weeks ago. And we talked about how a lot of religious or philosophical schools have a dualistic approach in which they see reality as being divided into two parts. One is matter or prakriti, nature. And it's seen as a kind of degenerate or false world. And the other is a transcendental realm of spirit, the kingdom of heaven, if you will, Purusha, um, Brahman, or whatever. Now, this, or, or for Plato, the Platonic forms. Now, this du dualistic school often pits these two against one another. So a dualistic school like Zoroastrianism, Platonism, um, Christian. Um, uh, Christian mysticism, not the Gnostics, but a lot of other Christian mystic schools um, and various others will pit these two against each other and suggest that this world is a kind of degenerate one, that it's a world of illusion and it's outwardly uh, attractive, but is actually, in essence, bad for you. And when you realize this, you start to crave contact with this other more transcendental, more chaste world and then you launch into spiritual practice, which gradually extricates you from being stuck in this world and draws you into a more intimate encounter with that other world. You know? So that's what the dualistic schools um, espouse. And in order to achieve that, a set of practices is prescribed. Now let's look at some non-dualistic schools. Non-dualistic schools like Taoism maybe, or um, uh, Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, see this world as not even existing. You know, so they, they say that what you take to be real isn't just impure as uh, Plato or Kapila would say, it's actually not really even there. So the reason that you're so dissatisfied with life is because you're trying to eat, um, you're hungry, but you're eating out of a bowl with nothing in it. It's a, it's a hologram, it's an illusion, it's a trick of perception. And so a non-dual school invites you to recognize this. Through another set of disciplines, you come to a very intuitive, powerful realization that this world is actually 
not what appears to be. It's not what it appears to be. And then you renounce it. You know, so that's one strategy. Of course, on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Charvaka schools or what today is modern scientific materialism that says only this world is real. It rejects other forms of reality. So it says, okay, this Purusha stuff, this platonic forms, you're telling me that there is some ideal number four that exists out there, Plato, and every other fourness in the world is just a reflection of it. Ah, sounds ridiculous. So the materialists say that like the non-dualists, they say only one world exists and it's this one. So by now you can see there's a kind of a spectrum. On one end, there is the non-dualist who says only the transcendental world exists. This one doesn't really, or at least this one exists, but it's being looked at the wrong way. Now a materialist says only this material world exists. The transcendental one doesn't. The only thing to live for is pleasure, hedonism, um, or some other form of rational ideal like justice or ethics or in the best case. In the middle, you have dualists, you know, Sankhya, Plato, all that. Now, except for the materialist, um, every other school of spiritual philosophy has a core set of ideas. One of those is continence, um, the turning away from sexual desire or seeing sexual desire as somewhat out of place in your spiritual life. That's an important thing that we must recognize. Now, it, in its outward form has caused a lot of harm for the human species. You know, <laughs> when this idea of continence is dogmatically prescribed, it turns into the worst form of sexual repression that ends up causing a lot more harm for the spiritual practitioner and everyone around them than the supposed benefits. A lot of people dogmatically assume continence when they enter into a spiritual life without really understanding what it's for, or more importantly, how to do it. My claim today is that nobody should practice brahmacharya or continence if they do not have the necessary training and practice in order to transmute that urge into something a little more spiritually aligned. You know, so we talked a lot about that last week. And of course, in a Western society, the moment someone suggests maybe continence or, um, uh, uh, transmuting your spiritual, your sexual desire to a more creative spiritual expression, maybe that's going to be good for your quest. The first thing you feel in a Western culture is, why would I even want to do that? You know, why would I want to give up the, the one thing that I consider to be great in life? <laughs> and say you do want to do that, your next question is how? You know, how do I do that? So in order to kind of get deeper into this question of why would you want to do it and how to do it, let's talk about how people come into spirituality. This is important because I think this is also a shared phenomena amongst all the different religious schools in the world. I'm going to suggest there are three ways. The first is a spontaneous awakening experience. St. Francis, as we discussed last week, had just such an experience. So St. Francis is a Christian mystic. Um, <laughs> Christina says, for a second, I thought a massive spider was coming for you. It is. It is coming for me. <laughs> this is my last conversation with you. And then I will be eaten. That's the deal that I made with the spider. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, Christian mystic, um, St. Francis, very beautiful mystic. And Ryan shared a beautiful poem from St. Francis in our last week's class uh, video. Anyway, St. Francis had one of these spontaneous awakenings. Legendarily, 
he is uh, a mystic, but he's born to a noble family. So before he becomes St. Francis, this is the origin story, he's just, you know, a nobleman. And he's, according to legend, incredibly vain and haughty and kind of caught up in the trappings of aristocratic life. And one day he's in a carriage and he notices a leper and the leper, you know, leprosy, they, they used to think it was contagious and you don't want to be touched by lepers. They're outcasts. They live on the streets and they look hideous. And so a lot of people are very kind of, oh, stay away from me. You know, some COVID sentiments back then. Stay away from yeah, yeah, this, the, uh, it's, it's funny. Um, historically, that's not actually St. Francis. It was attributed to St. Francis, but it's not actually St. Francis. Oh, it's funny. It's a, lot, it's a nice study there. Um, but it might as well have been because that was really the core of his message. Anyway, so St. Francis, he's in this carriage before he's St. Francis. A leper comes up to him and asks for money or something. And he shirks away. He's like, ew, yuck, get over there. I don't, I, I don't want to come near you. And in that moment, something happens to him. A satori, or, or in Japanese Zen traditions, they call this satori, instant awakening. He is struck with a profound realization of his own vanity and of the illusion of his life. He suddenly realizes that everything he took to be important up to that point is really not that important. You know, people have this experience often right before they die. You often hear accounts of old people saying, ah, if I only didn't spend so much time at the office, or if I only didn't prioritize this over this, you know, a lot of people, and if you spend time in old folks' homes, a lot of people right before they, you know, towards the end of their life, they do experience a pretty profound depression sometimes in many cases, you know, we don't see that in Western society because we like to, you know, put all the old folks away, put all the sick people away. And God forbid we look at corpses. You know, in India, you'll see them burning all along the Ganges, on the Ganga, you know. So in many cultures, you see death. You live with your grandparents. And I was with my grandfather in his final moments, you know. He was a yogi, yogi all his life. And even then, there was that profound sadness that usually pounces on you right before you pass away. St. Francis felt that in his youth. He was struck by a spiritual lightning. And in that moment, he said, how could I shirk away from the leper? You know, he had a non-dual experience. He saw himself and the leper as not really different. So he jumps out of the carriage, runs to the leper and gives him a big hug. You know, it was so counterintuitive and that's what shook him up. And supposedly he um, renounced his wealth. You know, that's important. He renounced his wealth. He renounced his name and title and lands. And one of the first things he did was to go to the marketplace and strip and make donkey noises or something, you know, because he was trying to um, uh, deny himself as Jesus prescribed. And then he goes on and practices spirituality. So for him, it was a spontaneous awakening. The world fell away from him. He didn't have to do anything. He just woke up. The world fell away. Similarly with Sri Ramakrishna. Ra sorry. Yes, Ramakrishna to a degree. I was going to say Ramana Maharshi. I often get the names mixed up. But Ramana Maharshi... He, at age 16, you know, his father passed away. So you'll notice a theme. You'll notice a theme. His father passed away and he was sad and, and he went upstairs and he lied down. He just lay on his floor. And he asked the question, who am I really? And he was spontaneously enlightened. You know, and that day he left school. He just walked out of his house without saying goodbye to anybody in his family. 
He went to a mountain, found a cave and sat there. Nobody knew what happened to him. And he sat in this cave. Historically, he sat. This is a 19th century saint. This is all very well documented, but he sat and bugs had eaten away at his flesh. You know, he was so detached from his body, so immersed in his spirituality that not only had he renounced the world as St. Francis did in the form of giving up uh, possessions, he had renounced his literal body, you know, and he had like gave it to the worms. He was just sitting there. So naturally a being like this exudes a very strong charisma, very powerful spiritual aura. It's like a fragrance. And we won't talk too much about auras, um, but when you meet a master, they just cheer you up. Something about their face, something about their continents. It raises your vibration. Dare I use this uh, catch-all phrase? <laughs> but anyway, he was sitting in the cave and his vibes was so strong that it attracted eventually seekers and they came and they found his cave and they started to just sit there and meditate with him. Eventually, word got back to his South Indian village and his parents, realized, his mom realized that that's where he was, you know? So the mom went up there and it's like, oh my God, what happened to you? <laughs> Imagine the shock of the mother realizing that her son is a saint. And she runs up and apparently he broke his silence in order to teach his mother, you know, spiritual instruction. He was a mauna, wouldn't speak. Gave up his body, gave up speech. A more contemporary example for you, um, Eckhart Tolle, you know, in his own words, as he describes in The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle was in Cambridge University studying something. He wanted to be an academic. And in A New Earth, he talks about watching his, not watching, but hearing about a suicide of his favorite professor. So he says his professor, who he saw as the archetypical professor, the height of academia, what he himself aspired to be. He heard about that professor killing himself. And this rocked him to his core. He realized that you could be really intelligent, but concurrently deeply unhappy. So it became very clear to him that intelligence and wisdom or knowledge and wisdom were two different things. So he was so shaken by that experience. And he was also going through a profound depression at the time. What uh, John, St. John might call the dark night of the soul. So in his own words, in a power of now, the story is he one day, the depression gets too heavy, you know, too dark. And he goes into his room and everything looks alien. Like his room is just ugly and it's an affront to him. And he climbs into bed and his depression becomes so condensed, so contracted that something happens. He describes it as a portal opens and he gets sucked into it and he falls asleep. He passes out. When he wakes up the next morning, he says he, his eyes are closed, but he hears the sound of birds singing. And he said it was the first time he heard the sound of birds singing. You know, he had never noticed the sound before. He had never understood its beauty up till that point. And he, in his mind's eye, behind his closed eyelids, he visualized a diamond. And he said, that's the sound that the diamond made, the singing of birds. You know, um, Om Mane Padme Hum, the jewel in the lotus. Just that side. Anyway, so he heard that and he woke up and he was transformed. He left the university. He even gave up his own name. And uh, according to him, he just sat on a park bench <laughs> for months doing nothing. He had no money, gave up everything, you know, had no friends. 
just let go of all of his old acquaintances. I mean, after all, he just wasn't the person that he was a night ago, literally last night. <laughs> so eventually he goes to a Buddhist monastery and he uh, hears some theory that helps him contextualize what he experienced. So he's an awakened master. Anybody who goes and sits with him will feel that. You'll feel it in his energy. You know, He does something to you. You might find sitting with the master like this, their very words resonate in a way that makes you feel inspired, just makes you excited. So that's what happened to him, Ramakrishna. I could go on all day. Now, my point here is that there is a certain class or group of individuals that achieve this spontaneous awakening. In the tantric tradition, this is called a high degree shaktipat or descent of power. It's a very rare form of awakening. So that's one way. That's one door. It's called anupaya or the way that is not a way, if that makes sense, to use a tantric phrase. The way that is not a way. Um, it's spontaneous. Now there is another way, and I believe that's um, the way that a lot of us here have taken. And that is the way of the philosopher, the way of insight. Now, this isn't as dramatic as the first instant. In the first instant, the world falls away from you know, Eckhart Tolle says he doesn't feel sexual desire anymore. He sees it as something happening way over there. He's sexless. He's not in the, the body anymore, you know. Um, Ramana Maharshi, celibate. Ramakrishna, celibate. Vivekananda, celibate. The Buddha, like name a spiritual being. And often that being is probably um, renounced sexuality. With some exceptions, there are some kind of crazy Tibetan eccentric masters, you know, um, but that's a topic for maybe later in the night. You know, after our class, we usually have an after hours and it gets pretty wild. We'll save some of that for later. <laughs> but anyway, for now, um, this seems to be for us what we can see. Nisargadatta Maharaj, Ramana Maharshi, what we can see is this is the data. Spiritually realized beings are no longer identified with their body, no longer identified with their sexuality or with their possessions. They have renounced them. Or I should say the world has renounced them. <laughs> the world's given them up. So often they don't even keep their own name. Eckhart Tolle had a different name. He changed it. You know, um, Most monastic orders demand that you give up your name. So if you join the Swami order, you are no longer Nishant Selvalingam. You are Swami such and such, you know. Now, um, all of this is to point to the fact that there might, there might be something to this, you know. Okay, so for the rest of us, um, we come into it by insight. So we realize that we are thirsty and we're drinking salt water. And no amount of salt water is going to solve our thirst. It's only going to make us thirsty. Of course, this is my metaphor for any kind of gratification you can get through your senses and through your ego if and this is the disclaimer, if that gratification is seen as the ends. You know, so if you see sexual consummation as the end or as the goal, or if you see power as the goal, or even if you see security or safety as the goal, you will live your life in such a way as to be constantly disappointed. You know, we talked about that last week. If you live for pleasure, four things you'll notice. One, pleasure is intensely transient comes and it goes so quickly. Two, because it is transient, um, there is a threshold. You need to keep doing more. And the more you do, the less of it you feel. So you get numb 
to the pleasure. So that's the second trap. There is a threshold or as someone commented on one of my videos recently with an economics theory about marginal diminishing returns, she was excited because she saw that in economics, there was a concurrent idea. Anyway, so you have marginal returns. The second pizza slice, not as good as the first. No um, syringe will ever do for you what that first syringe did. It's chasing the dragon in the drug circles. So that's the second problem. The third problem is because of the transiency in problem one, because of the threshold and numbing in problem two, problem three is the pursuit of pleasure creates painful imbalances in the body that often cost more to you than the pleasure was worth. You know, So over time, there is some serious damage. And some people only learn this in their later years. You know, My father is a urologist and he always talks about the patients he had who in their younger years would rave a lot. Um, but what they didn't realize is that if you do a lot of ecstasy, it actually has an effect on the bladder such that um, you can no longer hold in pee in your later years. So my father had patients in their 30s and their 40s who couldn't go two minutes without needing to pee. What a hell, you know, but this is usually the result of um, uh, chasing pleasure doggedly. It creates these painful imbalances that harm more than it helps. Now, the fourth, and this is the most important, we mentioned this last week, and this is kind of, I think, the core of why we're talking about this. The fourth reason why pleasure will never satisfy you is because it sets up a pattern of bondage. It's addictive. This is usually the awakening moment for people when they realize their desires are no longer something they do. It's something that happens to them. It gets done to them. Their desires live through them. And they can no longer help but reach out for that thing that they desire. This is a very um, uh, offensive affront to the human condition. There's something in you, call it your spirit, I don't know, that feels offended by being in this state. You know, there's something in you that seems to desire freedom and you're acutely aware that you don't have it. As much as you want to say that you are free, I will challenge you and say free to do what? free to follow your desires, give someone a week off, see what happens. They'll get bored in two days. You know, <laughs> people want to be free, but they realize that they not, they can't in any sense be free insofar as those patterns of craving are in them. So I'm going to give you a fifth one today. And that's my salt water example. The reason this pleasure is so pernicious is because there is no satisfaction, as Mick Jagger, the great prophet of the West, already pointed out for us. You know, the reason you don't get satisfaction is twofold. One, because of all the stuff that we said. But two, interestingly enough, anytime you give in to a pattern, it seems to make that pattern stronger. You know, so every time you satiate a pleasure, I'm not sure how to say satiate, but anytime you give in to a pleasure, it demands more of you tomorrow. You know, so it's like drinking the salt water. You just get thirstier. Spinoza, the Dutch philosopher, actually, Dutch Jewish philosopher, talks about this a lot. Um, so I can kind of phrase it like this. You're thirsty and the world we live in gives you Pepsi every day. You know, every day, the advertising, the institutions of learning, the culture that we are immersed in sells us Coca-Cola and tells us that it's going to make us, um, it's going to slake our thirst. Yeah, we're going to talk even the desire of freedom. We're going to talk about that desire too. And it's also a trap. 
Um, but yeah, so we live in this culture. We're immersed in this Coca-Cola culture that says, drink the Coke, it will make you less thirsty. But you know how that goes, right? All of you have had an in and out experience where you're thirsty and you drink the Coke and you don't really feel refreshed. The sugar in the Coke makes you thirstier than you were before drinking. You know, so there's a moment when you're like, Coke doesn't actually make me, uh, doesn't actually quench my thirst. This is the insight of the philosopher. Remember last week we talked about the ramen shop? You know, you don't need to finish the ramen. You can take two bites and realize that this ramen isn't for you. Some people walk into the ramen shop, hit their head on the ceiling, spontaneously awaken, walk right back out. Ramana Maharshi, Eckhart Tolle. They didn't even need to pay for any ramen. Other people need to come in and, you know, eat a little bit. And then they're like, this isn't it. This, this fame ramen or this pleasure ramen or this power ramen isn't going to do it for me. Then you become interested in spirituality. But here's your predicament. While you know in your mind, intellectually, that certain patterns are no longer serving you, you haven't yet dropped them. <laughs> they haven't yet given you up. They still maintain their hold on you. So you find yourself trapped. Only now it's worse because you know you're in prison. And then sometimes you see the, I, I, uh, I told myself the one thing I won't do is invoke the cliche of the matrix. Uh, which is for many people in the 90s, their first experience of Eastern ideas, <laughs> especially non-dual ideas. Um, but you remember in The Matrix, there is a character there who no longer wants to be woke and he wants to go back into The Matrix and he makes a deal with The Matrix so he could fall asleep again. And his famous words are, I know that this meat isn't real. Um, yum, 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 yum. And I know that this wine isn't real. <laughs> But boy, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> so some people, um, they're lucky because they're not, you know, they're just, they're, they're doing that. They're drinking beer, watching sports and nothing's wrong, you know, but something happened to you. And when you realize like, okay, that's not enough. You're in this weird in between, no man's land. You're not Eckhart Tolle or Ramana Maharshi yet. So these desires haven't fallen away from you. Yet you are also neither a worldly person because you're coming to your senses, you're realizing that those things don't really satisfy you. Now, here's the thing, the worldly people will realize that too, but much later, you know, for you, that realization is dawning at whatever age you're at. It's like, oh, but here's the clincher. The desires haven't given you up yet. So you want to be free of your, in yoga, we call them samskaras, but there are still samskaras. And a samskara, it means a tendency. It's a pattern a complex, a psychologically embedded behavioral uh, system that you haven't really been able to shake off. So today I'm going to tell you how to do that. I'm going to give you four paths or four distinct approaches to that dilemma. Before I do that, though, I'll suggest the third door into spirituality, the, 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 the door that is not a door, Anupaya. Then you have the uh, door of the philosopher or the insight door. The third door is the most common, and it's called the way of suffering. And it's probably the most effective way. I highly recommend it for everybody. Um, what I want to say is don't give up peanut butter until you're really ready to give it up. Ram Das has this example. Uh, eat the whole damn jar of peanut butter until you cannot stand the sight of peanut butter. Then your search probably will be controlled. <laughs> most of you have already done that in previous lives. Remember we talked in our reincarnation discussion. The reason a lot of you are here now 
at the ages that you are at is because you've done all that peanut butter eating in previous lives. I'm sitting with Maharani's, kings, queens. I'm sitting with world conquerors who are here because they've given it up. They've realized that, I'm sorry, but not even an Alexandrian empire, the whole of Hellenistic you know, world can do it for you. Never will slake with it. It's just Pepsi-Cola. Okay, so the way of suffering is interesting because jokingly, but compassionately, I call this the way of the stockbroker who right now is in the Ritz-Carlton with the gun in the mouth trying to end it. You know, this is the thing that happened to Eckhart, you know, that contraction of suffering. The beautiful thing, Steve Vai, the guitar player, actually made this point. I thought it was really nice. Um, he said, all suffering has a self-destruct mechanism embedded in it. You know, you are for a time attached to your suffering. You're attached to your patterns. But there will come a day when you are so nauseated by the lack of meaning in life that you are forced to leave the cocoon. You are forced to wake up. And I'm actually, hopefully today, if we have the time, I want to give you kind of a philosophical reason for why you had to go through all of that. Why you had to be in the cocoon. Why did you have to go through all that suffering? You know, why did your soul incarnate and then continue to like do stuff that harmed it? And I'm going to tell you that it was all a beautiful part of the process and you wanted to do that stuff. It was worthy of exploration. That's coming up. But for now, let me just say the way of suffering is when you um, suffered enough and now you're starting to wake up. It can happen at any time in your life. Usually it's towards the end of people's lives when they're at the height of their wealth, their power, or maybe they just lost all of it. Um, something like that. Or disease, you know, usually, um, what do you call it? Terminal illnesses can be very profoundly transformative in that way because it really puts your life into perspective. Now, notice something else, right? A lot of the examples I told you earlier today in class um, are about people who have been close to death. Eckhart Tolle saw suicide. Ramana Maharshi had his father passed away. Sri Chaitanya, the starter of the Bhakti movement, the founder in 15th century Bengal, was at his father's funeral. The Buddha saw a sick man, a dead man, and an old man. So you become philosophers when you start realizing that this is inevitable in life. You are going to die. Despite your best efforts, despite this assumption that you will be immortal, the end is imminent. You know, Whether it's 80 years or 10, maybe you're a Hatha yogi interested in eternal life and building the Divya Deha. Whatever it is, um, the philosopher realizes that we're not getting off in the ways that we're told we ought to get off. So now you want to renounce. This is why today's talk takes this as a point of departure. If you are still in the world, chances are nothing of what I have to say will be of value to you. You wouldn't even be here. There would be no attraction to this philosophy. That being said, I want to say that there are three flavors of spiritual practitioners. All of this is fine, by the way. There's no judgment. Um, and wherever you are in your path is exactly where you need to be. But here are the three kinds of spiritual practitioners. You have the sattvic practitioner. Uh, I'm going to use the Sankhya terms for the flavors of energy. We'll talk about what they are later if you're interested. The sattvic practitioner is a spiritual practitioner whose life centers entirely around spirituality. So spirituality isn't something they do for one hour in the day. In fact, the day is something they do for their spirituality. It's a complete reorientation of life where everything you do, you do for the sake of, wait for it, getting free. That's the orientation of the sattvic philosopher. The sattvic philosopher has come to the deep um, 
internalized realization that the world is just not going to do it for them. And so they are now wholeheartedly extricating themselves from the world. And they're not there yet. You know, I mean, there's still patterns that pull them back into the world. Every day they fall a thousand times, but they get up a thousand and one times because they believe that these ideals can be lived. You know, so the sattvic practitioner is deeply interested in getting free. We might not all be sattvic practitioners, and that's okay. The rajasic practitioner is interested in getting high. <laughs> so this is the second kind of practitioner. Um, yes, getting true, getting free. Interested in getting free, that's what I say. And true, beauty, maybe. Truth, capital T, beauty, capital B, self, capital S. The sattvic practitioner is ready to go beyond all illusions. You know, in Tantra, we call this an adhikara, adhihara, the, uh, what do you call it? The grade that someone is at. <laughs> it's not hierarchical. It's just where you are in your journey is where you are, you know, and you must be taught differently. So if you were um, a, like, I'm going to describe the three and then tell you, but the rajasic orientation is where you're not really interested in getting free. In fact, you don't really see why you might want to yet. There's still things in the world you want to enjoy, you know? There's still things for you to do. And that's great. I'm going to tell you why towards the end, why that's great. So for you, spirituality is not an effort to get free. It's an effort to enhance life. In other words, it's an effort to get more refined forms of enjoyment. Maybe you realize the steak dinner, the molly at the rave, and the six beers at the Super Bowl wasn't doing it for you. But maybe there are more refined forms of sensual pleasure. So you get interested in art, poetry, um, sensuality as opposed to sexuality. Um, and as Travis says, or to map enjoyment to anything and everything you will do in life. Yes, yes. So this is, a, it's an enjoyment orientation. We call this boga. So yoga is the trying to get free. Boga is the trying to enjoy stuff. And it's not bad. Um, before Tantra, yes, there was a culture in India of saying it's bad. Um, as there are in every other spiritual culture of the, every other spiritual culture. But, you know, the point I'm trying to make is there can be an orientation in which your spirituality is a supplement to your life. Meaning you want to get to certain states of meditation that feel good. You're chasing bliss. You know, that's what you want. And that's okay. So the rajasic practitioner isn't interested in getting free, is interested in getting high. To borrow one of Ram Dass's phrases. Now there's another kind of practitioner, the tamasic practitioner. The tamasic practitioner isn't even interested in spiritual highs, nor is she interested in uh, refined states of beauty or cultural appreciation. And she, shouldn't, she certainly isn't interested in getting free. <laughs> the tamasic practitioner is still interested in the most carnal of pleasures. That is sexuality, power, control, um, heavy kind of pleasures, but... Uh, she uses spirituality to get it. This is so common. You know, the uh, religious leaders of the world who use spirituality as a control mechanism to fulfill lower desires. There's still practitioners. And in Tantra, we call these the black magicians. You know, they might be using their powers. Bikram might count. <laughs> Not to judge anybody. You know, I don't know people's stories. But, but you can name in your own life many of these fallen yogis. They might have started with high aspirations, but somewhere along the line, they became degenerate. So these three people you will find in the spiritual marketplace. 
If I were to teach renunciation to the tamasic spiritual practitioner, they would have no use for it. And if I were to teach uh, the highest ideals of spirituality to the rajasic spiritual practitioner, they still don't quite get it yet, you know? Yet, I still want to put these ideals in front of you because I want to say with all of my being, oh, <laughs> sorry, Roxanne. <laughs> I hope I haven't offended. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would love to talk to you about that experience since I wasn't around for all of that. Um, we only back home have our notions about Osho and Bikram, you know? <laughs> Um, but we don't actually know them. So who are we to do? A lot to but, share. <laughs> yeah, I'd be excited to hear actually. Now, um, to close, we've only got a couple of minutes, but I wanted to close with this sentiment. The ideals that I'm presenting to you today are ideals. And if you're just starting to become interested in spirituality, they will seem like uh, just that, unattainable. I mean, how do you overcome the sex drive? Oh my God, every day, like every other thought is horniness. How do you overcome this reaching out for chocolate cake? I mean, these drives seem so powerful, so beyond us. And I'm even talking about your complexes, like when someone says something that triggers you and you bark at them and then later you feel like, oh, that wasn't sattvic. I, I, I ought to not have done that. You know, when you miss meditations, because whatever it is, whatever the trip is for you now, it might feel like these ideals are out of reach. And I want to say with the wholeheartedness of my being that they are not, that any sincere spiritual uh, practitioner can live these ideals. And these ideals are worth living. So if you want to know why renounce the world, most of you are already hip to that. We've talked a lot about the trap of pleasure. We've run the Buddha ragged <laughs> in talking about him. We've also um, last week talked a lot about Advaita Vedanta and how every time you reach for something because you think it's going to complete you, you are reifying. That is, you are internalizing a false self. You are buying into the idea that you are she who is not complete. You are she who needs another bite of chocolate cake. She who needs a romantic partner. She who needs X, Y, and Z. As long as you are hypnotized by the she or he or they who need fill in the blank, you are barred from truth. So if you fulfill desires, you are on a Pavlovian conditioning level, reifying a construct. Now, that's why you turn away from it so that you can more wholly embrace what you actually are, which is the bliss uh, of the fulfilling, rewarding, blissful awareness of your own true being your own fulfillment, your own fullness. Until you feel that fullness though, you're always gonna be pulled into the false self. So in, I'm gonna give you four techniques now from four different schools to deal with this. The final one is Tantra, which we'll you know, really go on an adventure next week. I just wanna introduce it to you. So the four, the first is, and I'm gonna do it in terms of the hardest down to the easiest, you know, the, the, the most ideal down to the most accessible. You can choose, you know, some will appeal to you. Now, the, the hardest is jnana yoga, which is the insight that nothing in the world will do it for you. It's kind of like the way without a way, the anupaya I was talking about earlier. It's an insight and then you internalize the insight. So it's not just an intellectual idea. It's a deep insight that you feel with all your cells. How to do this? Here's the technique. You must, there are three things you have to do, but the way to do this is you must immerse yourself in spiritual philosophy. The first step is shravana, 
Listen to it. Listen to people tell you that you are not the body, you are not the mind, you are the eternal spirit. Read about it. Really immerse yourself in these spiritual ideas about your true nature. In yoga, it's called svadhyaya. In, by the way, in Patanjali, that word svadhyaya doesn't really mean to journal. <laughs> it means to study the sva, the self, the real self. And that means reading the Bible, reading the Quran, reading the Tao Te Ching, getting into this philosophy. But that alone, a lot of you are already doing, it's not working. You know, we live in a world of armchair occultists. <laughs> they read a lot, but that's not, you know, knowledge won't do it. Yet in Jnana, we say it's a step. It's a necessary step. But once you've done that, once you've done Shravana, then you have to do Mananas, which means you have to contemplate or think about what you heard. So it's not enough to hear, I am not the mind, I am not the body. You must work with it. Work with that knowledge. Be like, is that really true? I mean, is that something that I can verify in my own perceptual mechanism? And, you know, we've also run that horse ragged, right? Talking Drigdrusha Viveka, Panchaskanda Viveka, Panchakosha Viveka, sorry. There are many philosophical arguments I could give you, and we have done that, to show this to you. So you do that, you think. One almost can imagine Jacob wrestling with God in the tent. You know, it's like that. You must wrestle with these ideas. You must really work them out. And then this is the most important, nididhyasana, internalize. So the first one is shravana, listen. Second one is mananas, work on it. Third one, without this, the other two don't really matter. The other two can't do it for you. The third thing, shravana via TikTok, yes. Mananas via after hours on Monday night when we debate till 12.30, because <laughs> we do, and I love it. Um, but nididhyasana can only happen for you in your own meditation. Maybe it happened for some of you, like, like in a conversation with someone. It can happen spontaneously, sure, but usually it requires that you sit and meditate with that idea. You contemplate. In other words, to borrow Harish Wallace's phrase, which I love, you feel into the vibration of a statement. You feel into the validity of a statement like, I am not the mind, I am not the body, I am eternal. Now, it, in my experience, it takes a lot more than a Vedanta class once a week to, to nididhyasanify this idea. You know, I used to like go to Vedanta talks like every day I was, I was doing it, but it wasn't enough. And I realized that the reason this jnana yoga is really hard is because you have to do it full time with a lot of focus. You can't just mechanically go, I am not the mind, Shiva Ham. You have to, with your intention and focus, engage with these ideas every single moment of the day. Your whole day must be one of alertness. Say you are, someone made fun of you somewhere uh, and you feel a reaction. Suddenly you should be able to say, ah, look at that. The drunken monkey Nish is responding to blame. But he knows he is not the mind. Look at him getting caught up. There's a kind of dissociation, a kind of detachment that requires a deep meditative practice. You can't do this kind of thing without a mature meditative practice. What a meditative practice gives you is space between you and your reactions to things. You know, So a jnani, a practitioner of jnana yoga, hangs out in this space a lot. <laughs> Just watching. So that's one method. That's the first one. You can, through insight, move away from these things. I'm going to use Vivekananda's quote here. It's powerful. I love it. He says, you are a lion in sheep's clothing, hypnotized into weakness by your surroundings. Isn't that beautiful? 
every day, you know, the moment you wake up and open your phone to the moment you look at your phone before you go to bed, you are being bombarded in a subliminal way by a cultural message that you are a disempowered being that needs to go out and buy stuff to feel a little bit better about your sad, lonely existence. You know, that, and I'm not blaming anybody. There's no conspiracy theory. There's no big brother. It's just the way that the, the, the culture is shaken out is that you every day are suffused with this idea that you are the body, you are the mind, you are this ego. It's going to take a lot more than one Vedanta class on Monday night to displace years and years of cultural conditioning. You know, you must adopt a new conditioning. After all, that will be thrown away too. As Ramakrishna says, you remove the thorn of ignorance, the splinter of ignorance with a piece of knowledge. But do you keep that knowledge after you've gotten rid of the splinter? Not at all. You toss it, you know. And Abby, I see your hand. I'm just going to wrap up these three more so I can, I know some people only have an hour and I want to respect that and try to wrap it up. I will go five minutes over. I'm sorry. But I want to get these other three tools to you before you go. So the first one is Jnana Yoga. Immerse yourself. That means every day it's got to be ongoing. For this, I recommend mantra. Uh, a mantra, there are many ways to think of mantra and we can devote a whole class to it. For now, I just want to say a mantra, let's use it in this context, a repetition of an idea that you keep up throughout the day. You know, A simple one I'll give you now is Aham Brahmasmi or aham idam aham, or eheye. All of that means is I am full stop. That mantra gets you interested in your awareness and your being as opposed to your doing or the objects of your awareness. So you, you know, traditionally would get a mala bead maybe and every day you just repeat that to yourself when you're in line at Trader Joe's, what have you. Okay, that's the first technique. The second one is Raja Yoga. It's a little easier than jnana, I would say, but still pretty damn hard. <laughs> I'm going to add hatha yoga inside this because hatha yoga is seen as a preparation for raja yoga. Raja yoga is the path of meditation. And in fact, I'm going to conglomerate, excuse me, Shakyamuni Buddha, I'm sorry, I know you won't like this. Um, and he's going to slap me across the face later when I go to light him a candle, but I'm going to subsume Buddhism into Raja Yoga because both of them are parts of meditation. You know, Patanjali has Ashtanga Yoga. Buddha has the eightfold path. Both of them is prescribe a system whereby you abide by an ethical code of conduct to minimize drama in your life. You abide by an internal system of purification so that you're, you know, feeling good in the body. And that kind of handles stuff. Then you go through a rigorous discipline of asana. If you are really interested in brahmacharya, in continence, asana practice is indispensable. Your cravings are electrical in nature. And so they must be addressed on an electrical or maybe neurochemical level. That's why asana is important. But you cannot just do 30 minutes of asana once a week. You really have to do it. You have to do like an hour and a half at least every single day. You know, you got to do your asana. Then you do your pranayam, which is uh, energy control. Asana and pranayam alone, if done diligently every single day with attention to detail and with a desire to evolve your practice. So you can't just do the same sequence every day. You really should be evolving. If you do this, that will um, very powerfully dislodge your samskaras. You won't feel as horny as you did. You won't feel as, you know, it's different. It's like you're able to control your body a little bit better. Now, 
Some of you a week ago couldn't control your breath or your heart rate. Now, after a week of asana practice, today you can slow your heart like that. Is it so unbelievable that in one year you'll be able to control all your impulses like that too? This psychic control is possible. It is within your reach, but you must work for it. Um, it would be easier to make a million dollar business <laughs> than it would be to control the body and the mind. You know, it would be easier to conquer a kingdom than to storm the inner citadels of your own mind, as Paramahansa Yogananda says. But you are up to the task, and you don't conquer it in a day. You don't take Rome in a day. You do it little by little. You cannot cram asana. I learned that painfully in music school when I tried to cram ear training. You just can't do it. You got to train every single day. Okay, so that's Raja Yoga. The way Raja Yoga works is this. Once you purify the body and energy through asana and pranayama, you are able to engage in something that we call meditation. It's a very technical practice, but if you can meditate, you will burn up your samskaras. That's the technology. It just fries the seeds of your desire so they don't kind of grow into the trees of action. And then you kind of get free, you know. So that's the second path. The third path. This is a little easier. And Ramakrishna says this is the only path that's really appropriate for our time. This is the path of bhakti yoga, and bhakti yoga says so. One one day, someone came to Ramakrishna and said, "How do I overcome lust?" Ramakrishna said, "Why on earth would you want to overcome lust? Just turn it towards God instead." You know. So bhakti yoga says uh, it's a dualistic path in that it says there is a deity, a god. I think you can practice bhakti very successfully as a non-dualist too, um, and uh, I hope that you know in our bhakti classes together you've seen that <laughs> there is a bhakti appropriate for non-dualist. Anyway, to be brief, bhakti yoga proposes a spiritual ideal. Call it Krishna, call it Allah, call it Jesus, but you set up an ideal and then you say, "Not my will, but Thy will be done." So you start to reorient your life not around yourself and your own needs, but to that being. So every time you eat and you cook your food, you put aside a little food and you give it to the altar. You don't eat until your deity has eaten first. Every time you eat, you think this is for you, Krishna, who is inside. I'm feeding my inner Krishna. Every time you practice asana, you're not doing it for you. You're not trying to get free. You're doing it for Krishna, for Shiva, for whatever your ideal is. You know, the idea here is that you reorient your life so that you don't change what you do. You do what you do. You just change that you're now selfishly eating the fruits of your action. So go ahead and have sex. Go ahead and eat the chocolate cake. Just cry out Kali when you orgasm. You know, when the chocolate cake melts on your tongue, think of Shiva. Think of Krishna. This is actually a really sneaky technique because the technique recognizes that your impulses are going to have their way with you. The way of psychic control and the way of immersion in philosophical ideals might not be for everybody, but this is a little bit more accessible. If you can just but think of your highest ideal in every single moment of your life, particularly those moments when you are becoming gratified sensually, then something interesting will happen. You know, see for yourself, of course. Don't take my word for it, but it transmutes that thing that you do. 
So it no longer gets done to fulfill yourself. It gets done in a different way. The vibration of the thing changes and you will find these desires fall away from you. You know? So at first you were eating chocolate cake, getting sloshed on wine and going to a rave for Krishna. And then all you did, you want to do now is sing and sit in front of the altar and teach and, and, and help others for Krishna. It just has this way of sneakily changing your life. So in closing, the story here is this. Raja Yoga is a king. You know, it, if, it, if you want to have the king in your house, you have to really prepare your house. <laughs> Bhakti Yoga is a maid servant. She's very humble. She comes to your house. You don't have to do any preparation. But despite yourself, she cleans your house up. You know, another story, a saint comes to your house. If you let the saint in, he will say, oh, can I have a little corner so I can set up my image? Can I borrow your kitchen so I can cook food for the altar? Can I actually have a room to devote it to meditation? And slowly, the saint will take over your life. <laughs> it's called the story of the sage stretching out his legs in your home. <laughs> Bhakti is like that. You do a little bit of it, and then it changes your whole orientation in life, and you're just bhaktiified, you know? then your desires will fall away from you. You'll naturally become celibate because you no longer can see people as sex objects. You know, you look at someone and you see them and maybe a, a year ago, you'd be like, ah, here is an opportunity for power. I can turn them into a fan or here's an opportunity for sexual gratification. I can turn this into a one night stand. That's your previous frame of mind because it was always oriented around me, me, me. Then something interesting happens. You start seeing everything as Krishna, everything as Shiva. You look at someone, you're like, there's an opportunity for sexual gratification. Oh my God, that's Krishna. That's Shiva. How could, I, how could I see that person as a means? How can I objectify what I have enshrined as my highest spiritual ideal? Do you see? It's very subtle. And you look at people and you feel desire, but it's completely of a different kind. Suddenly, it's no longer in your loins. You will feel it energetically up here as Claire felt today doing pranayam, if I might share. But you feel it here. It's like you get horny, but in a different center. You know, so to talk about the chakras, you're just on a different plane of existence. You know, that's what bhakti does to you. Okay, definitely couldn't talk about tantra because um, that was the fourth tool I was going to give you. Um, and I, I do want to respect your time. So what I will do is end here with the promise that next week we will explore Tantra in the context of how to use a sensation to melt into nothingness, to give you a taste, aha, pardon the pun. The way to do it is develop your meditation practice. So Tantra does, pre Tantra is not for like a beginner. You know, Tantra requires that you have a very strong meditation practice. Once you develop that practice, the way Tantra says to do it is this. Every time a sensation arises in the field of your awareness, become so immersed in it. Become so fixated on that experience. So you are now becoming like an aesthetician, you know, an aesthete, a lover of beauty, a lover of the senses. And it's a very refined sensuality because the chocolate melts on your mouth you start to become really interested in that a moment of it melting on your mouth. If you are able to do this, you can fix your mind completely on the chocolate. Here's what will happen. Every flavor comes and goes. 
if you can focus your mind on a flavor that arises, when the flavor goes away, you know what else goes away? Your mind. Isn't that interesting? It's a kind of Patanjali Yoga Sutra kind of orientation because your dharana is now the flavor, the taste of chocolate, literally, not the visualization, literally. And if you can properly fix your mind to that dharana, it melts with the, the object of sense, sense, you know? So then you have this no mind, as the Zen Buddhists call it, no mind experience. And that can enlighten you. You know, so that's one way to get to where Eckhart is, to get to where Ramana Maharshi is. Another way is every time you do orgasm, let's say you do eat the chocolate cake or you do orgasm, focus very intently on that feeling of uh, satisfaction. You know how uh, Big Jagger says, I can't get no satisfaction? He, he means that because it happens so quickly. You know, you, like, you come and then you're there, you're like, oh, I'm not as satisfied as I thought I would be. But there is a moment there is a moment right after the gratification where for at least a second, you are satisfied. Go there, you know, internalize that, imprint that feeling in the body. And slowly that feeling of being perfectly fulfilled will permeate your life. And then you know what happens? You no longer desire stuff. Your desire is stronger than ever, but it's the other way around. Now you desire to give, not to take. Where before you desire things to complete you, now all you desire is to share your already completeness with others. Now you become an artist. So Tantra is the way of the artist, the way of the teacher, the way of a person who hasn't abandoned the world. In fact, has transcended the world so much that she's finally able to live in it the way that she was meant to live in it, in a state of fulfillment. And so the tantric worldview said you had to go through all of that suffering. You did it by choice. It wasn't an error, as Buddha says, or the Advaita Vedanta says. Not an error. It's not a mistake that you drank a six-pack of beer in front of sports for like 40 years of your life. You wanted to explore that possibility. You know, you as God, and that's what you are, make no mistake, came, not only did you come into this world, you made this world and every six pack of beer and every Super Bowl so you could explore the possibility of that life. Only when you were satisfied with that exploration were you fit for this exploration. So nothing is bad. It's just not everything. There's more. There's more to life. And that's why you all came. That's why you're on your path. Let's close there, okay? So definitely went way longer. Sorry, sorry. I'll give it back to you someday, somehow. Maybe we close uh, with a Triambaga Mantra. The mantra is a powerful Shiva mantra, tantric mantra. And the Sanskrit translates to, O three-eyed one, auspicious bestower of blessings and beauty. Please remove me from my bondage the way you would remove a cucumber from the cucumber stem <laughs> with that finality. That's what this uh, mantra, the Mahamrittunjaya mantra means. I will chant it thrice. Please take a meditation seat and bring to mind something that you would like your higher self to prune away from you. Something that you are finishing with. Take a moment to visualize that thing now. See yourself doing it, engaging in its behavior. And then together, let's throw it into this fire. 
ಯಜಾಮಹೆ ಸುಗಂಧಿ ಪುಷ್ಟಿವಾರ್ಧನ ಉರ್ವಾಕಮಿವಂದನ ಮೃತ್ಯೋರ್ಮುಕ್ಷೀಯ ಮಾಮೃತ ಓಂದ್ರಿಯಮ್ಮಗಮ್ಯಜಾಮಹೆ ಸುಗಂಧಿ ಪುಷ್ಟಿವಾರ್ಧನ ಉರ್ವಾಕಮಿವಂದನ ಮೃತ್ಯೋರ್ಮುಕ್ಷೀಯ ಮಾಮೃತ ಯಜಾಮಹೆ ಸುಗಂಧಿ ಪುಷ್ಟಿವಾರ್ಧನ ಉರ್ವಾಕಮಿವ ಬಂದ